there are decisions being made um, at all of these different levels. And we're going to be the ones to translate those decisions for our kids and their families in our classroom. And so we need to be involved in those discussions. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher in the Los Angeles area. This is year 17 in the classroom for me, and this here, of course, is all of the above. Your place for news and analysis of all things related to the world of education. We want to shout out everybody watching us on YouTube or listening to us on the go. And Jeff, I would be remiss if I did not point out that this episode is dropping about one year, one year since we left our physical in-person studio. It's been about one full year since the coronavirus lockdown closed all the physical school buildings across the country. And well, so much has happened in that year. And a lot of y'all discovered our show over the course of that year because some of you, of course, were like so many teachers struggling to sort of reassess and reevaluate your place in this in this profession given all the uncertainty of of the pandemic and some of you went searching for podcasts like ours or shows like ours to to gain broader perspective and we also saw an uptick in viewership and listenership during the summer after or in the wake of the reckoning for racial justice across the United States and we saw a lot of educators search out shows like ours to learn more and to be part of these really dope conversations these critical conversations that we have here on all of the above so we just want to shout out everybody for just hanging in there through the midst of just what has been an unimaginable time in education. Thank you for being here with us, and um, we're going to continue to do what we can to, to fight for educational justice for all of our young folks, despite whatever pandemic, whatever politics, whatever challenges might lie ahead. Yeah, man. One year. It's incredible. It's, it's hard to conceive of, man. And funny enough, you were, I think you were like the last person in my life that I like really know who I, who I saw before <laughs> before going into the quarantine. <laughs> you, man. Yeah, we filmed that episode with uh, Travis Bristol and Misha Mosley on yeah. that like that Saturday when the lockdown went into effect in California back before we, you know, we were like, is it really bad? I don't, yeah, know, man. What should we do? And then and that was it. That was that was the end, right? Um, yep. So, man, it's hard to believe it's been a full year at this point. But, uh, you know, vaccines are coming. And uh, hopefully we can, you know, adjust to something better than this soon. Indeed, indeed. Um, absolutely. So, Jeff, we have we have kept the show on the road despite the closure of our, our normal studio. Thanks to the support of a lot of our listeners, a lot of our uh, viewers, we've been able to finance a, a, a home studio setup and we're going to keep it moving as always. So, Jeff, what is on the agenda for today's episode? Well, Manuel, as usual, we got a good one for folks today, and um, I'm excited for this episode because, you know, we are both people who have a secondary background, right? Um, yeah. And I think we often tend to start our conversations looking through the lens of, 
you know, of secondary teachers, right? Um, and, you know, we, we do our best to kind of talk about higher ed and talk about early ed and elementary as well, but um, it's, it's fair to say we haven't had a ton of elementary voices on the show. Um, and we're gonna, we're gonna do something about that today. Um, we are bringing on um, a teacher, Megan Cyril, uh, who's a teacher, elementary teacher in Los Angeles. Um, she has been a teacher leader for a number of years. She has been um, active in her union, um, United Teachers of Los Angeles. And uh, in this kind of day and age where the, the questions about reopening school and starting with elementary school, at least here in, in California and here in LA, starting with elementary school, um, you know, are, are kind of on everyone's mind, right? And where I think there's some broad consensus that, you know, the significance of missing a year of school for, say, a first grader compared to, say, a 10th grader, uh, you know, is, is a different thing. Uh, Megan's going to help us kind of get into some of these issues, right, about how pandemic schooling has impacted elementary uh, students and teachers and looking forward into this kind of debate about when and how to reopen schools, especially for our youngest learners. So it's going to be a good one. You definitely don't want to miss it. Yes, indeed. She is so dope. I'm so excited. This is, uh, is going to be great. Um, all right, folks. But up first, we have our Do Now, where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. All right. Stay tuned. All right, folks, it's time for today's Do Now. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Man, well, today uh, we have the distinct privilege uh, in the spirit of policy from our from our federal government of uh, doing some testing, Manuel. So uh, we got a pop quiz for you today. We're going to do a little assessment. All right. Pop quiz. Um, cameras on, students. Surveillance <laughs> states. We got to make sure nobody's uh, nobody else is in the room when you take oh, a test. God. All that. Oh, all um, that. All right, Jeff. So here's the first question for today's pop quiz. Who wins in a fight? The pandemic? or the school to prison pipeline? Ooh, uh, wow. I mean, you know, school to prison pipeline is powerful, but I think I'm gonna go with the pandemic, man. Well, I mean, pandemic affects the whole world, right? So I'm going COVID-19 for the win. Yeah, well, the pandemic has certainly packed a punch and it looks like the pandemic is winning this round. However, the school to prison pipeline is not to be counted out and it looks like the school to prison pipeline is poised for a rematch and perhaps revenge, according to this article, which we drew from the Heckinger Report. And we just wanna take a moment to shout out the Heckinger Report, uh, a great source for education news. So if you are somebody who is interested in these issues in education and you don't already read up on the Heckinger Report, then we highly suggest you do that. This is not a, a paid ad or sponsorship or anything like that. Although we wouldn't be against that if, if, if that meets anybody's fancy. In any case, this story we get from Heckinger Report from some great reporting by Carolyn Preston and Sarah Butrimowicz. And they report that when it comes to school discipline, this school year has introduced a host of never before seen disciplinary infractions. Records from one district in Florida indicate that roughly 11% of disciplinary incidents were in some way related to the coronavirus pandemic and the district's new requirements for in-person and virtual instruction. Students removed their masks, chatted inappropriately in Zoom and failed to socially distance. And um, in this article, 
Well, they they report that over the course of just one school day last fall, a middle schooler received an in-school suspension for ripping off another student's face mask and blowing into a peer's face. Six other students across the district were written up for not wearing their masks correctly, including one student who faked using hand sanitizer. An elementary student was assigned three days of quote-unquote private dining for sharing food in violation of safety guidelines, and an e-learning student got in trouble for filming another student during class without permission. School discipline during the pandemic has been confounding for many teachers, with few having received much guidance from administrators on how to handle discipline issues, whether in the virtual learning environment or in the new COVID-minded physical learning environment. But at the same time, in some districts, the number of students being referred to the justice system by school administrators has fallen, prompting advocates and lawyers to wonder if schools will permanently reconsider their role in criminalizing student behavior and contributing to the school-to-prison pipeline. There is concern, however, that if students don't receive adequate counseling and other support to cope with the emotional challenges exacerbated by this pandemic, there might be a surge in behavioral issues and punitive discipline when this when more children return to the actual physical classroom. Dan Lawson, who's the director for uh, the Center for Civil Rights Remedies at UCLA's Civil Rights Project, is quoted as saying, I predict there will be a train wreck if we don't staff up and provide the services, especially mental health services, to all the kids who may need them. So, Jeff, it looks like as far as those criminalizing behaviors um, by way of school discipline, those are down this year during the pandemic. But there is concern that when this pandemic is over, we're going to see a surge in that sort of uh, really, really tough discipline that we saw contributing to the school to prison pipeline for all these years. So there's a lot going on here, Jeff. I'm wondering what your thoughts are around discipline amidst this pandemic. Yeah, Manuel, this this is one of those stories that actually leaves me with like more questions, I think, than than answers. Because honestly, in a virtual context, I'm trying to picture like what a student could do that would result in a suspension, right? I mean, I guess there's maybe this sort of Zoom bombing scenario or something, right? Um, so, so maybe, I don't know, maybe that's it, but uh, I'm just trying to imagine like how turning on your camera or not turning on your camera or muting or unmuting, like how any, like what do you control in, <laughs> in, in the classroom space that you could you know, theoretically used in some way that would warrant a suspension. And I'm like, I, you know, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard for me to, uh, to imagine that honestly. And, and I can, you know, there's all kinds of like inappropriate things that could happen, right? Saying negative stuff in the chat or whatever. Right. But I, you know, that, that just warrants a different type of response, right? Like you talk to the kids, you talk about what's, you know, what's the expectations of the community and why you build community. You know, you do, you respond to that in a different way than with a suspension. So, you know, on the one hand, I guess I'm, I'm saying like, I'm glad this data is going down and I sure hope it would go down since so many kids aren't actually in school most of the time right now. Um, so that's good. But also, uh, you know, I, 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 there's something about this to me that just feels like, shouldn't it have dropped way more than, <laughs> than it has? Uh, you know, and may, maybe I just, you know, need to do a deeper analysis. But uh, it, it brings to me as like, if we're finding ways to still suspend or involve police in kids' learning experience, 
that's hybrid or distance learning, you know, we're, we are seeking a problem uh, and finding ways to criminalize kids that, uh, that just like, we need to stop immediately. Right, right. Yeah, early on in the school year, there were several incidents where teachers found ways to uh, get students suspended despite being in a virtual learning environment. There was a kid, I think it was Colorado, who was suspended for having, um, I think, a BB gun in the background. And in Louisiana, some kid received a six-day suspension a six-day suspension from school because he had a BB gun on his bed or something behind him, which is crazy. So um, so there, there was some of that early on in the school year, I, I think. But in terms of more recently, um, somebody in the article mentioned that it's kind of hard to tell right now because it's it's easier for certain teachers to discipline students and not have to write it up in quiet ways, such as not allowing a student to unmute themselves or not allowing a student to log into class or uh, removing a student from the Zoom uh, environment. Um, whereas before that might have taken like paperwork and send the kids to the office. Now a teacher could just with one click remove the student and and keep it pushing. So you know removal is removal, whether it's physical or not. So so there is that, but um, you know the article did point out that in terms of referrals to police, that has been way down. I think they talked about Miami-Dade Miami County in particular and how usually each year there's dozens and dozens of students who are um, referred to, to the police department. And this year there's there's been, I think it was like five or some single digit number, which is great, but it's kind of like to your point, like, well, yeah, it should be down that low. And why why are there any in this, in this case um, referrals to police? So you know, some, I think, wonder whether or not this whole experience during this pandemic and our, our so-called reimagining of education um, and reflecting and doing some inner work might result in hopefully a more humanizing approach to school discipline when, when we are fully in person. I do not expect that to happen, however, because we are, we educators are so overburdened with these conversations around returning to physical school, standardized testing, and just like all the usual stuff that like, I don't know how much teachers are actually being supported and prepared for envisioning a full return to in-person and thinking about discipline in a different way. Like those conversations I don't think are happening at all. So uh, so the person in the article um, from UCLA who said like, he's worried that there's gonna be a surge of discipline incidents when we fully return back to in-person. Yeah, I could, I can totally see that. I can totally see that. And I'm worried as well. And not because students have gone this year with without as much access to counselors and social workers and, and, and the type of supports that they might need. I'm worried that teachers, a lot of teachers, especially those of us who have been virtual this whole time, um, returning back to the classroom, I think there's going to be... Um, it's going to be a rough, rough transition for a lot of folks and and getting back into that world of having a, a room full of students and having to navigate the different challenges of that. Yeah, I'm worried that a lot of teachers are just going to go with the old school, like, nope, can't be in here. got to go um, on top of the fact that there's going to be all these new rules around, you know, social distancing and all these things, all these new ways to to discipline students that that. Um, you might already have a grudge against as a as a, a terrible teacher, you know. So, yeah, man, I'm a, I'm a little worried. We'll 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 see where this goes. But I've I have lost hope. I'm sorry to say I have lost hope for a reimagining of education um, taking place. As soon as we started hearing those calls for standardized testing and all this pressure to to reopen like quickly, I realized you know what that whole reimagining business that's 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 it, it seems like that part is done. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, you know, 
I feel like your skepticism is warranted. I don't think I would say I have lost hope. Uh, but I would say the writing on the wall is not good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, honestly, something, Manuel, that the article talked about that I hadn't really thought a whole lot about in a while uh, because we've been in distance learning all year here in, in L.A. Uh, is the sort of new disciplinary infractions that result from a hybrid context where kids have to, like, you know, walk on a certain path to maintain social distance or, right. you know, of course there's mask wearing requirements and, you know, hand washing and a certain number of people allowed in the bathroom or, you know, at a time and those sorts of things. Right. And the, like the very righteous, I'm not saying we shouldn't have very uh, clear procedures and rules around, you know, how to keep everyone safe. We should, but the question then arises, right? Like, so what do we do if a kid is not, abiding by those, you know, by those rules. Right. Um, and, uh, and you know, it's not a joke, right. It's not, a, yeah. it's not a game in terms of the risk that that could pose to others. So, um, you know, th I think that actually puts us in a spot where there's potentially, you know, this kind of really unfortunate combination of the pre-existing inertia of the system that we know has lots of racism and racial bias built in. Right. Um, right. with, a, a new sense of urgency around upholding the, you know, the rules, <laughs> right, for everyone's safety and very real risk of not following those rules, right? Uh, and that could be a situation that is, uh, you know, at, well, and I guess also mixing in there, right, the just sort of normal childhood behaviors yeah. of like flirting around and seeing what you can get get away with with the rules, right? Yeah. So, um that you know that combination could prove to be really unfortunate um, in terms of how it plays out in the lives and the lived experience of some of our already most marginalized kids in school. So um, that's going to be interesting to see how you know how that plays yeah. out here in LA. And I think it's probably going to take some real intentional work on the part of schools and educators to not have this turn into a COVID version of the line of black boys outside the principal's office, right? Um, yeah. And uh, I hope, <laughs> I hope we're ready for that. Man, I hope so too. You know, for, for too many students, school already felt a lot like a prison. And with more rules, especially rules around physical spacing, it might feel even more like a prison for, for certain students and, and depending on the, the, the climate and culture of the school for sure. So yeah, we need, to, we need to have those humanizing conversations right now before it's too late and before we see a, um, a, a growth of this school to prison pipeline. So, yeah. Yeah, so, all right, Jeff, what's the next question for today's pop quiz? All right, man, well, next up is, what's 13% of GDP in the United States and disproportionately hurts black, brown, and poor folk? Hmm, there's a lot of possibilities there, Jeff, because there's a lot of things that disproportionately hurt black, brown, and indigenous <laughs> folks, but I'm gonna have to go with, um. Maybe private prisons, the amount of money we spend on, on private prisons. Is that, is that what we're talking about here, Jeff? You know what, Manuel, the beauty of this question and the beauty of this answer is this is America. And so whatever <laughs> you picked 
is correct. Whatever you pick, Pretty if you much. had said if you had said cucumbers, it probably would have been right. We could have found a way. Man, <laughs> food deserts, that it, food deserts that it would in the have hood, been people right. not getting yeah. access to cucumbers. Yes, man. Yes, and of course, uh, private prisons, hundred uh, percent correct. Um, although I don't know if we spend thirteen. I don't know if thirteen percent is the right private but, prisons. Yeah. We we do prisons like nobody else, but I don't know that we're spending that much on prisons. Uh, right. The the official correct answer, uh, the best answer uh, for this question today, Manuel, is student loan debt. Student loan debt. Mm, okay. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we're going to get into this here. And uh, like you said, props to the Heckinger Report because we got another story uh, from them today coming from Pete D'Amato. And... Uh, President Joe Biden, congressional leaders and debt experts are continuing to argue over student loan debt forgiveness, both how much should be canceled and which branch of government can offer the relief. Biden has balked at pushing for $50,000 of relief for student loans, uh, for student loan borrowers, which many progressive members of Congress have been pushing for, and has instead proposed a much more modest $10,000 relief plan. Now, a majority of Americans support student loan forgiveness, but some critics have argued, perhaps disingenuously, that despite uh, sounding good, it is a policy that would provide benefit to a group of Americans, those who've attended college, who are by default uh, among the more privileged people in our society. Now, the Heckinger Report's analysis of federal data shows that student loan debt has ballooned over the last two decades, completely ballooned. In 2003, the total outstanding debt uh, hovered around $200 billion. By 2020, that figure had grown seven times to a total of $1.55 trillion, with new lending amounting to $100 billion each year. Now, while in general, middle and upper income households tend to borrow more in total than low income households, those with the fewest assets are actually accumulating student loan debt faster than any other group. The median student loan debt of those households has rocketed above $30,000 on average. And even if borrowers go on from college to middle class jobs, they can still be burdened by debt and can wind up unable to build wealth because of student debt and because of other systemic inequalities, uh, inequalities like housing discrimination, right? This can be particularly compounded if uh, borrowers, as is often the case for lower income black and brown borrowers, tend to default more than their white and more affluent peers. Now, researchers have found that late payments and delinquencies tend to spike around $2,000, uh, around the $2,000 level in loan balances. That might seem really low to folks, but this is likely because many of those borrowers begin, uh, began school but did not complete their degree program. Those knocks on a borrower's credit then have the compounding effects over time as the cost of borrowing, even renting an apartment or getting a car loan can go up over many, many years. So Manuel, $1.55 trillion in student debt right now. And, uh, you know, the president and Congress are playing hot potato with student loan debt relief. Uh, what's what say you, Dr. Rustin, with three degrees and, and a couple of loans in the mix? Yeah, man, for sure. Uh, I, I would say cancel all student debt, like just cancel it. If, if the government, if if the Department of Education has the power to simply wipe it away, I would say wipe it away. Um, that number sounds like a big number, but then you think about other things that, that um, we spend money on and, and how big those numbers are. 
hint, hint, military, hint, hint, F-35. Was it the F-35 program? That's like trillions of dollars uh, for these warplanes. Like, let's cancel the student debt. Now, one thing about this, this breakdown in the Heckinger report, they do point out that there is some truth to the, to the notion that some middle and, and upper income families um, carry a lot of student debt and cancellation of debt might actually benefit some, some affluent families. That is true. So what? Like, yes, there is that. However, there are a lot of folks who are struggling and a lot of folks who need this, this help and this support. And I don't want to not do it only because it might benefit some folks who don't need it. We just sent out, you know, over the course of this pandemic, we've sent out stimulus checks to, to individuals and, and those stimulus checks weren't enough in the first place. But a lot of folks got those checks who didn't need them. I can name some folks, I'm not gonna put them on blast, like folks in my own life who received checks and definitely didn't need them, but it's okay because we know most of it is going to folks who need it and those who don't need it, there is also the, the reality that that money will be reinvested in the economy in some kind of way. Like folks that I know that got stimulus checks that didn't need them went out and bought stuff. That's good for business and good for econ the economy. So it's not just about helping out folks by canceling student debt. It's also a, a form of stimulus. In this uh, Heckinger report, this analysis didn't really get into the stimulus part of it, but um, but there is that. Also, I mean, for the president to say he, he's against it because it'll go to help folks who went to Harvard and Yale and all these things, that's super whack. Because just because you went to those schools doesn't mean you are affluent and that you're doing great. I mean, I am here, I went and got a, a Harvard master's and guess what? The teacher pay scale does not have a Harvard bonus there. So there's a lot of folks who went to these schools and aren't like bringing in the dough because of that. So I don't like that part of it at all. Lastly, not lastly, actually two more things real quick. Uh, for those who say, well, I paid off my student debts. Why should uh, why should somebody else just have theirs canceled? That's like the dumbest logic ever. I mean, I, I lost my father to leukemia. It was a long drawn out battle. I hope they cure that thing and I hope nobody else has to go through that. And if they cure leukemia and some folks don't have to go through that, like my family had to go through that, I'll be so happy for them. I'm not going to sit there like, oh, y'all got it easy. I just, you know, got out of it and my family had to suffer through this. No, I will be happy for them. Even if some of the folks who were to benefit from a leukemia cure, maybe are terrible people and shouldn't get that. So what? I will still be happy that they got that help because... I want to see people not be harmed and not be hurt. And the last thing I'll say is so much of this uh, debate focuses on the individual borrower and, and it's like their decision to take out loans and go to college. We got to remember that one reason why student loan uh, debt has, has skyrocketed over the years is because tuition has skyrocketed. And that has a lot to do with policy decisions around supporting colleges and supporting especially our, our state schools. So um, I want to quote, you know, I have some student loan debt that I still have to pay off for this doctorate. Part of me getting that doctorate was exposure to a, a lot of research, and I want to pull from that and, and read a, a brief quote from a research article that um, we analyzed in my, my uh, doctorate program. And this comes from Financing College Opportunity by McClendon, Tanberg, and Hillman, 2014. I just want to read one line of this, this article. This goes into, this is like a long-form analysis of financial aid over, over the course of decades. And one bit of their research found that I'll quote, overall, stronger Republican electoral presence at the state level is associated with higher levels of public investment in need-based student aid, but with lower levels of spending on general fund appropriations to campuses. So translation, 
States that have had more Republican control of the legislature and the governor's seat have been states that have been more likely to reduce appropriations to college campuses. In other words, defund their college system. And as a result of that, those are areas where students have been more likely to rely on need-based financial aid, such as a lot of these student loans that we are talking about here. So let's not just talk about the individual borrower. This is part of a larger issue here with how we support our institutions of, of higher learning. Yeah. Uh, very well said, Manuel. It's, uh, you know, I, I feel like you made all the major points right there. Um, I saw this week on Twitter a, uh, you know, a meme, and I forget which, you know, white man Republican was, was yapping, uh, but uh, was talking about the student loan debt issue and saying, you know, when I was in school, I worked a minimum wage job over the summer and I paid, you know, my tuition and, you know, uh, ostensibly yeah. casting shade on the millions of students across the country for whom that is a financial impossibility. Right. Yeah. And it showed right, you know, right below <laughs> what he was saying, you know, in 1974, the minimum wage was three dollars and twenty five cents an hour. Tuition at his university was eight hundred dollars for the semester. In 2020, minimum wage is seven twenty-five. Uh, tuition is, you know, twelve thousand dollars per semester, right? Yeah. And um, you know, and and like that is the financial reality we're living in. This is a man-made problem, and I'm saying literally man-made because let's be honest, yeah. this is made by mostly a bunch of men. And uh, you know, this was an intentional set of choices put in place because the incentive structures in Washington actually reward folks, right? When, um, when there's greater people, a greater debt, right? Among the, the population. Um, and the reality is this is not about work ethic. This is not about pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. This is about a system that is fundamentally unfair to students and that cripples financially, particularly folks who are not the poorest students in the country, right? Because a lot yeah. of the, the very poorest folks get full financial aid in a lot of cases, right? Or the amount of debt they have to take out is really small. But it's the folks who are like just above really, really impoverished, right? Up to the middle class who are having to take out huge swaths of loans. And then of course, there's not million dollar a year salaries waiting for everyone when they graduate, right? Um, and so this is actually further widening the gaps in terms of, you know, wealth inequality in this country. And this was a set of choices. We can make different choices, like, as you said, abolishing student loan debt or at least doing the $50,000. That would do a huge correction in terms of, you know, who would be left with debt to pay off would be more, uh, you know, on the spectrum of folks who've like, gone on to grad school and got multiple degrees or, you know, folks who are at the upper income earning threshold um, in the country and are better equipped to pay off their remaining debt and do things than like buy a house while they also pay off a smaller loan. So this is good policy. This helps the vast majority of people. And I think these these attempts to say, well, this is not progressive policy are coming from the people who don't support any progressive policy. So Facts. I'm not I'm not buying it. So, <laughs> yeah. Big facts, big facts. And of course, we love facts here on All of the Above. Um, in Jeff, I think they would have easily wiped out this student loan debt. They would have canceled these loans if we weren't, as a nation, so addicted to this myth of meritocracy, this whole idea that, like, I did it, why can't you do it? Uh, yeah, we, it's past time. It's past yeah. time to uh, get rid of that. So, yeah. Yeah.
All right, folks, that about does it for today's Do Now. Up next will be our seminar segment. Let's talk about elementary schools and this reopening pandemic learning uh, complex situation. All right, that's coming up next. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks so much for watching All The Above. We appreciate everyone who listens or watches our show. And it has been a year, a whole year, since we had to leave the studio, come home and film remotely. And we had to build from scratch our home studios. Of course, that's not free. And we are so grateful for the support that has come from so many of you out there. If you're new to the show, you like what you hear and you want to support, that's great. All you have to do is go to aotashow.com support. That's aotashow.com support. There you can donate on Venmo or on Cash App. We are at AOTA Show. Or you can go on Anchor and you can subscribe. That means a lot to us because every little bit helps. Even a few dollars a month helps us keep making this show for you. Thanks so much, folks. Enjoy the rest of the episode. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. With so much going on during this pandemic education era and so many conversations and debates being had around everything from reopening to who, what level of, of student is being harmed the most through distance learning or hybrid learning, we thought it'd be prudent for us to invite a super dope elementary school teacher who is also an active member of her union to help explore some of the complexities of teaching amid all these debates around reopening and, and so-called learning loss and all of that. So we want to welcome to all of the above, Miss um, Megan Surreal. Megan, what up? Hi, everyone. Nice to be with you. Thank you so much for, for dropping by all of the above. We are very excited to hear about your perspective as an elementary teacher and how your, your experience has been during this pandemic. But let's first give our viewers and listeners a little bit of background about your work. So Megan Cyril is a national board certified third grade teacher in the Mandarin dual language program at Broadway Elementary School in Venice, California. This is Megan's 13th year in the classroom where she also serves as a teacher mentor. In addition to teaching, Megan plays an active role in her union, United Teachers Los Angeles, and has served as a chapter chair and House of Representatives member. Megan is a Teach Plus California Senior Policy Fellow who earned her credential and master's in teaching from USC. University of Southern California. I I hear that's the second best university in Los Angeles. Oh, we're not going to start off that way, are we? I, I mean, I heard that that's the case. But in any case, also, Megan, I think we got to add to your bio that you are also, I think, officially the first elementary teacher to guest here on all of the above. So we might want to move that up to like the start of your bio because that's pretty dope. But in any case, thank you so much for being on our show. And I'm going to toss it to Jeff with the first question. Yeah, well, thanks, Manuel. Uh, Megan, so excited to have you on the show today. Um, I know we we connect on Twitter, uh, but it's nice to actually uh, meet you in person or as, as close as it gets to in person uh, during these, these pandemic times. Uh, but we'd love to start with really just kind of like checking in, right? Um, how are you and your third graders doing? And, you know, what are some of the successes or challenges that, that you've experienced this year? I know that especially for our younger students, distance learning is, it has made things, shall we say, complex. Yeah. 
Complex is definitely a word I would use to describe this year. Um, when I think about this year, I think about perseverance, I think about flexibility, and I think about grace um, that I'm trying to have with my students and their families and that my students have really shown me in this time. Um, you know, some of the challenges of being online um, is just the amount of time that we're in front of the screen. And so we, we've got to change it up a lot uh, to keep kids engaged. Um, assessment is, is pretty tricky because we've got kids all across the board. And so I'm just trying to know where my students are at and then how to meet them to move them forward has become so much more complex online when you have kids in and out of Zoom meetings, when you see pets and siblings in the background. Um, but I'm really proud of my kids because I can see that we're all doing the best that we can right now. Um, and, and some of the bright spots have been getting to meet my students' siblings, having their uh, pets in the screen with us. Sometimes right before I start my read aloud, uh, one of my students will say, Hang on, Mr. Rill, can I grab my brother? I think he's going to want to hear this story. <laughs> so we get a little bigger audience in the room, um, which is a lot of fun. And um, in this time, uh, it's been great to get to know my kids at home. Uh, they've been sharing the magic tricks they've learned how to do, uh, the coding games that they're making. I have kids who are singing for us and playing their instruments. And so getting to continue to celebrate them um, all of their skills and talents and try to foster that classroom community um, has definitely been the highlight of this experience because um, we get to know our students in a new way. So we're just trying to move forward um, each day, really focus on that classroom community um, so that our kids can stay engaged and connected with each other. Lovely. That's really heartwarming. It's always great to have a student show you their 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 pets or their little siblings and and to as a teacher to be virtually invited into their home, that's just, you know, a real honor uh, for sure. So I'm glad you you pointed that out as, as um, some of the bright spots. And you mentioned, you know, just trying to trying to trying to get through and and for for your district, Los Angeles Unified, at least at the time of this recording, you know, there's been intense debate about returning to in-person learning. And it, it looks like the district, like a lot of districts uh, across California, slowly heading towards a potential reopening, at least for the younger grades, uh, especially as more vaccines become available for, for educators and for teachers. So we're wondering, you know, with the few months left in, in the school year, what are your, your hopes and aspirations for what the next few months might hold for you and your students? I hope that when we can come back together and be in person, that it really is a celebration of getting through this year, you know, of making it through, yeah, what is what is now almost one year of um, being at home in distance learning. One of my concerns about this is that the timing of returning for in-person seems to match up with the timing of standardized testing and SVAC. And what I really don't want is for students to think about returning in person with standardized testing. I just think that sends the wrong message about what we value and what's really important right now. Um, so I, I'm hoping that when we go back, there is a plan to just focus on, again, recreating or strengthening that classroom community um, since we've been together in, in our own group of 24, 21. Um, and then also, recreating that school community because we have been so isolated from each other. You know, my third graders, um, while, while they're a pretty strong group together, haven't really had a chance to interact with the two other third grade classes. 
um, at my school. So I'm really hoping that there can be some opportunities for students to connect with those friends that maybe they haven't been with. Um, one thing I did at the beginning of this uh, calendar year in January when we started up again was to survey my students on the things that they um, needed or wanted as we continue distance learning. And one of the main responses I got back was, we just want time to connect and talk with each other and be together. And so if there's any way that I can provide that for my kids, I really hope that that will be a focus. Um, and then, you know, let's, let's make a plan for academics. Let's not just make knee-jerk reactions about what we need to do in the last one or two months that are, are left. Uh, but let's plan forward for next school year so that we can really um, uh, have a plan, have thought it through clearly so that um, our students are not harmed in this transition. Yeah, I really appreciate your, your thoughts there, Megan, and kind of framing of this issue around both the, you know, the concerns uh, about testing this spring and then the, the kind of actual needs that you're seeing and that you're hearing from your students around connection, around community, uh, around what I think many folks feel is what, you know, the main thing that has been really lost with distance learning, which is the, the kind of human aspect of, of school and, and the, the student experience. Um, so kind of building on that a little bit more, I think there's, there's certainly lots of use now of the term uh, and the rhetoric about learning loss. Um, and, you know, folks saying we've got to, you know, get to the bottom of the learning loss and figure out what it is and then address it, um, you know, in, in our classrooms. And, um, you know, I'm wondering if you can talk about what you think that means um, for you and for your students and how addressing learning loss might, you know, might look in your classroom. Um, but also, you know, what kind of challenges do you anticipate uh, coming up in terms of understanding, you know, uh, where your students are at and how to best support them? And what do you think schools need to do in order to best support elementary school students upon uh, a return to, to physical school? Yeah, you know, the, the learning that we've done this year is definitely not what we would have done in the classroom, but I think there have been some positives um, to that. You know, we've focused a lot this year on social and racial justice issues. And I'm really proud of my um, students, my kids for the way that they've engaged in some really complex topics and thought about what they can do um, in their communities and, you know, looking to other young advocates and activists. Um, and we've learned a lot of technology skills. Man, my students are my tech support they can troubleshoot for each other. So I think there are a lot of things that we have learned that might not seem traditional, but are still so valuable um, and useful for our kids. And I don't think we should lose sight of that because it wasn't exactly the same as before. And I do hope that when we go back into the classroom, we're not just thinking about going back to what it was, but we're really envisioning and reimagining what it could be. Um, because I think we've learned a lot, teachers, students, parents, um, and we have an opportunity to change things. So why not take that opportunity? Um, what we were doing before was not working, not working for all of our students, definitely not working for um, all of our colleagues um, and our staff. So, so we need to take this opportunity. 
I'm really hoping that when we go back to school, we have planning time. I'm hoping that we get very clear guidance um, at the state level, uh, from the federal level, from our districts of how to move forward so that teachers don't feel like they are left to do their own planning and thinking. Um, and I, I would love to have that time actually designated and set aside so that we're not doing it in the summer when we really need a rest. We really need a break this time around um, from what this year has been. So I, I'm just hoping that we can think clearly and slowly about going back and ramping things up. Um, always, of course, keeping in mind our students' uh, safety, their social and emotional well-being, making sure they're okay first, and then getting to the academics next. I love that. I mean, you mentioned hoping that we can think clearly and slowly about this. And I regret to inform you that clearly and slowly hasn't really been the um, the way we've been approaching any of this. And you can look at reopenings, uh, as you mentioned, like this knee-jerk um, reaction. And with the reopening debate, we see such such uh, such a fraught argument around like who's to blame and how bad are students being harmed by not being in the in the physical space and and this whole conversation has at least recently taken a turn to really really cast the blame on teachers and teacher unions specifically. So there's you know a lot of folks. There's been a lot of rallies, these so-called open schools now rallies across California to to push for schools to physically reopen for in-person schooling. And a lot of the folks at those rallies have been saying like it's it's the teacher unions. The teacher unions are getting in the way. These kids are at home um, suffering. And teachers, if they really cared about student achievement, they would. Um, get back to in-person learning. So we're wondering, you know, as somebody who's an active member of, of your union and, you know, United Teachers Los Angeles is, is one, that, one of the unions that has been mentioned in the news a lot by those who are criticizing um, the, the um, so I guess, for, for them, slow speed of reopening schools. We're wondering what your, how, how do you respond to those criticisms that teachers and their unions are the ones who are getting in the way of the type of learning that students need? Yeah, I think it's important to first acknowledge that this is hard. It's hard for students. I know it is hard for parents. It's been really tough for teachers too. Um, I think knowing that I'm working more hours in the day um, through my weekend to try to prepare uh, lessons and activities that can be as engaging as possible for my kids. And at the same time, knowing that it's not quite enough um, it's really tough. It's tough because I take pride in what I do and I want to give my kids the best. So so always knowing that there, there could be more and we've got to continue to work toward that, um, it motivates me. But I also don't think it is unreasonable for teachers to expect to be safe in their workplace, not just for themselves, but for our students and for all of our families. Um, you know, I was trying to imagine because we have been so fortunate to be able to work from home in this time, what it might be like to uh, be back in the classroom with all of the students. And I was thinking to myself that it's kind of like field trip days. Um, field trip days for the kids are probably the best day of the year. But I know for teachers, especially for my eight and nine year olds, it is the most stressful day <laughs> of my year because I spend the whole day just counting heads and watching kids' bodies and making sure that they are okay and that wherever we're visiting, you know, 
we're, we're all doing okay. And um, it takes a lot of energy for me to be hypervigilant about my kids. And what I don't want is when we go back to the classroom that I am spending all of my energy and attention focusing on counting masks and checking hand washing and did you touch this pencil or these materials? What I really want to focus on is my kids. Um, you know, they're academic, making that classroom community. Um, so I think, you know, expecting us to have the proper resources, um, proper staffing, um, and just to be physically safe in the classroom is absolutely a reasonable expectation. Um, I don't think any of us wants to yo-yo back and forth between classroom and home. We want to be moving forward. Um, and, and to do that again, we got to think carefully. We've got to be really considerate about how we move forward so that we're not causing further harm to our kids or to our community. Yeah. Uh, I, very well said, Megan. Um, and I, you know, the, that framing around, it's not unreasonable for educators to want to be safe or to expect to be, you know, have their health and safety be protected uh, in the workplace, I think is, is one of these fundamental points that sometimes gets left out of the larger, um, the larger political debate uh, as people, you know, are talking about the reopening of schools as school boards are having virtual meetings to discuss <laughs> the, the prospect of teachers going back into the physical classroom. Uh, you know, every day. Uh, and, you know, I think I, I am grateful for folks like yourself who have, you know, been able to kind of uh, work together and elevate the point of it's not a reasonable expectation to say, well, you know, maybe there's a one to five percent chance today you might contract a very dangerous, you know, infection um, while at work. Um, and that, you know, that's that's not actually a reasonable thing to do. Uh, when we have alternatives available to us. Um, so very much appreciate you you making that point. Um, I, I am wondering on that issue, though, if you might be able to speak about, especially for our youngest elementary students, the, um, you know, I think some of the pressure to want to reopen elementary school is coming from a well-intentioned place that says, you know, the, the impact of the kind of gap time in schooling for younger kids, right? Taking a year out of your time in school when you're seven or eight years old means something very different um, or certainly something more extreme than taking a year out of school when you're 14 or 15 or 16 years old. Um, and wonder if you can, you know, maybe just kind of speak to that in terms of like, what are you seeing in terms of the kind of developmental impact on students that the that the pandemic has had. Yeah, I think um, I can acknowledge that the work that we have done so far in this school year is definitely not the same amount of work that we would have done um, at this at this same time if we were together in person. Uh, we've really gone a lot more slowly with our math, focusing on depth rather than breadth, making sure our kids really understand the concepts that we're going through. Um, you know, when I think about the work that we're doing, um, I, I really just want to make sure that my kids are engaged first, um, that they're interested, and then try to bring in those skills and strategies that we know that they need. Um, but I also know that kids are resilient. 
Um, and kids soak up, <laughs> so they soak up a lot more than you think sometimes. You know, sometimes I'm not sure if my kids are always listening. And then when they remind me, oh, hey, Ms. Sorrell, you know, that reminds me of when we talked about restorative justice or we talked about, you know, um, collective value. I, I can give myself a little hug that, okay, they're getting it and we're moving forward together. Um, so, you know, there's no, there's, there's no easy way going forward, but I think making sure that teachers have that time to connect with each other, not just within your grade level, but across grade levels, um, so that we know where our kids are coming from, where we need them to be getting to, is gonna be really, really important, and teachers need to be given that opportunity and that time to do that planning. Nice, nice. Yeah, well said, well said. And, you know, Aside from what has been probably un un an unimaginably difficult school year for you as an elementary teacher trying to reinvent your practice, like I know for me as a high school teacher, reinventing my practice in the midst of this pandemic has been very difficult. And I can imagine how much more difficult it would have been if the students on the other side of my screen, instead of being 17, 18 year olds, if they were, you know, whatever grade third graders are, I don't even know what third graders are what, seven, eight, nine? Eight and nine around that age. Eight and nine, yeah, my elementary understanding is like non-existent. Uh, so I can imagine how much harder it would have been for me if I had like, you know, students that young on, a, on the other side of the screen. And in the midst of all that, you have, have maintained and, and you have a long history of, of really being a teacher leader aside from uh, mentoring you. You've been a part of several endeavors and in, in organizations uh, that work on education policy, you know, and you are a Teach Plus senior fellow and you've done some work with, with EdSource and EdTrust West and, and a lot of other places, you know. So we're wondering if you could expand on, on why is it important for, for teachers to have their voices be heard? And, and what would your recommendations be for teachers who are listening to this, who, who want to make their voices heard, but don't really know how to get going in, in, that, in that direction? Yeah, um, I got involved in education advocacy around year seven of my career. And at that time, I was feeling really good about the work I was doing in the classroom with my kids. Uh, but I also felt like there was more I could do to advocate for them and to advocate for myself and my colleagues. Um, and so I was really fortunate at that time to get connected with different organizations, like you said, Teach Plus, um, Educators for Excellence, to get involved in my union. Uh, because ultimately, there are decisions being made um, at all of these different levels, and we're going to be the ones to translate those decisions for our kids and their families in our classroom. And so we need to be involved in those discussions. Um, I think some of the best ideas I've heard come from teachers when they're just, you know, hanging out and talking about how the day is going. And you know, we are naturally uh, problem solvers by nature. So uh, why not come to teachers to ask them for their best ideas going forward? I think especially now when we think about transitioning back from distance learning to hybrid or in-person or whatever that next iteration is, it is really important that we take the lessons that we've learned from this time. Um, the positives, negatives, you know, all the good, bad, ugly in between um, and use it to create something new and to create something better. Um, you know, I've been lucky to just be talking to others and connecting with other teachers and then learning about other opportunities to share my voice and to share my story in that way. So I would really encourage teachers to connect with others, you know, attend conferences, get involved in your unions because 
you might just be having a conversation with a person who says, hey, can you come on our show and share some, some of your ideas? <laughs> I think, you know, it's, it's just really um, sometimes being in the right place at the right time, but taking all of those opportunities to share your story and what you're experiencing with your kids. Um, because otherwise, the narrative that gets told, I think, is really distorted. Um, and, and I know that that for all of the challenges we're experiencing, there are just so many bright spots of teachers, um, you know, doing amazing things for their students, of students really, you know, rising to this difficult challenge of distance learning. Um, and so we need to make sure that those stories are being told as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, there you have it, folks. Megan Surreal, thank you so much for stopping by all of the above. We know your, your, your students are in great hands. You are a super dope educator and your advocacy work for teachers, it really resonates with me as somebody who believes that classroom teachers need to be heard in these conversations because at the end of the day, we're, we're the ones who are interacting the most with, with kids and, and it's very important that our voices be heard. So thank you for coming on our show and having your voice heard. And we definitely hope that the rest of your school year is a wonderful, wonderful experience for you and your students. And no matter what the reopening future holds, hopefully folks will listen to what you said about making sure that we prioritize getting that classroom community set um, before rushing back to testing and, and all these other things. So thank you again for stopping by all of the above. All right, folks, up next is Class Dismissed, where we give shout outs to folks doing excellent work in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, we have reached that time in the episode where we like to give shout outs to folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. Jeff, who are we shouting out today? Oh, man. Well, I'm super, super excited for this one because uh, not only is this a big story in the landscape of education, but also I have a personal connection to this one. So uh, many folks, I'm sure, have heard that uh, right at the end of February, New York City got a new chancellor. So the New York City Department of Education, which is the, the nation's largest school system serving over a million students uh, across the five boroughs of New York, um, now has a new chancellor. Her name is Misha Ross Porter. Um, she is a former teacher, former principal, uh, former um, superintendent and executive superintendent in the borough of the Bronx, is now the chancellor of the nation's largest school system. She is the first black woman to hold that post. So this is a beautiful story because it happened in Black History Month and here we are now in Women's History Month. Um, and we have just an amazing story to tell about uh, about a black woman who rose up through this through the ranks of the system, uh, you know, made a name for herself as uh, just a powerful leader uh, in the South Bronx, serving you know the, uh, the nation's poorest congressional district at that time, one of the most underserved, um, under-resourced parts of New York City, um, and built a school that um, to this day is a place that uh, the kids and families want to go, and um, also connected to this is the fact that once upon a time, Manuel, yours truly had the privilege of being what was then called an achievement coach uh, for a network of schools. Shout out to the Urban Assembly. Um, 
And uh, Misha was one of the principals that I worked with. So I spent three years uh, coaching with Misha and uh, she was just a, a pleasure to work with. Someone I learned a ton from about, uh, about school leadership. And, um, and then I had the privilege of being a, a principal in the same network of schools with her as well. So I think I spent something like six years uh, working, working with Misha and uh, just so proud and excited for her. Um, and of course, for the whole city of New York to have a person like Misha, who is someone who, you know, who knows the work of education at the school site, who, as she said in her acceptance speech, is not going to forget, um, you know, what it feels like to be a teacher, what it feels like to be a principal and a school leader um, in the system. And especially during these very, you know, tricky COVID times where we're still living in. So I, I was just so excited to see that news, um, you know, uh, right at the end of February and uh, to watch live her speech, um, you know, and, and her acceptance uh, of the position of chancellor was just amazing. So shout out to Misha, props to you. Um, can't wait to see yeah. all the great things you do for schools in New York City. Yeah, so Jeff, it sounds like you got the inside track to uh, getting her on um, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Manuel, funny enough, I had thought, I actually had mentioned this to you. I don't know if you remember this, like maybe a year ago where I was like, you know, I know this woman, she's a superintendent in the Bronx. I don't know if, you know, she'd be willing to like make a, you know, an appearance, right. uh, you know, in the media in this way, or if the district would clear that. But I was like, she'd be a real interesting guest. And uh, <laughs> in as much as maybe I could, uh, <laughs> you know, could make that connection now, I feel like now uh, she ain't got no time for us, man. <laughs> The, the system She's only a has busy... a million students in it. That's not that yeah. big of a system. Yeah. yeah, what people fail to recognize about the New York City Department of Ed is it's bigger than the entire state school system of all but like 14 states or something, right? Wow. So it is a massive, massive system, even though it's very densely packed into the city. Um, but you know what, man? Well, maybe I'll shoot an email off and, uh, and see <laughs> see what I can do for us. That would be great if we could get Misha on. But um, yeah, man, just so, so proud of her, proud of, you know, this kind of symbolic moment uh, for the city of New York, my, my longtime former home. And yeah, man, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing where she goes. Super dope. We love to see it. We love to see it. All right, folks, that about does it for this episode of All of the Above. And again, we, we really appreciate y'all. Um, it's been it's it's been a year. It's been a, a, a quite a year. So keep hanging in there. And of course, if you enjoy what you saw or what you've listened to, please consider giving us that five star review. It really does go a long way. And uh, all of our content, all of the links to all the stuff we mentioned, all that is on our website, aotashow.com. All right. We'll catch y'all next time.